you're saying? There you go. Way to go. Alex. Uh, and, and, and that really helps me out because I wasn't sure what I was going to say next. But I know now. Uh, and we just remember this. Uh, you know that I'm on the examining committee at Presbytery and, you know, year, year by year and year by year. And one of the questions we always ask incoming guys that are coming to be ordained is, what is your favorite gospel? And I'm not sure I've ever heard a single one of them say anything other than John. And I think the reason that we're so drawn to it is because it's written by someone that was very close to Jesus, the disciple that Jesus had this special relationship with, this special love for. And uh, I was just drawn to jump into John's rendition of the triumphal entry uh, this morning. And so that's where we're going to go in John John chapter 12. Before I want to do that, I just want to make note, there's a special guy here. His name is Philip Gelston, and we haven't seen him for a while. But he is, you're serving PCA in Germany, right? Okay, so so we just stand up, and this is your wife? I hate to embarrass you guys, but (laughs) you're used to it now. So So anyway, just welcome them, would you? Yeah, we know Philip from a long time ago back at Seven Rivers and haven't seen him in years, even though I've seen him on Facebook a little bit and, and all of that. But uh, thanks for coming this morning. It's, it's really good to see you guys. Okay, so back to John. John chapter 12, beginning with verse 12. Uh, on the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took their branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna. Blessed is he, is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the, God, the king of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things the disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him and that they had done these things to him. And so the multitude who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, were bearing him witness for this cause. Also the multitude went and met him because they heard that he had performed this sign. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, You see, you are not doing any good. Look, the whole world has gone after him. Boy, if that were truly so. The whole world, if the whole world would go after Jesus, can you imagine what it would be like? So verse 12, the way I have translated the next day, and this would be the day after, if you're familiar with what goes on before here, uh, that that Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead weeks before, uh, but he had recently returned, just the the, the day before, he had returned back to Bethany, which is on the the Mount of Olives, and he had dinner at Lazarus' house, and that's when his sister Mary came and anointed his feet with with the expensive perfume. And that Jesus has stayed in the vicinity uh, over the duration. And, uh, and so now, here we have him leaving Bethany, and he's heading into Jerusalem uh, the day after this has taken place at the home of Lazarus in Bethany. One of the reasons I wanted to, to preach from this particular uh, narrative is because it's the only one that even mentions, the, the only 
uh, narrative of the raising of Lazarus occurs in the Gospel of John. It's not found in any of the other ones. And he also gives us a key here, too, and that is one of the things that we need to, to know and understand what's going on here with Jesus on this particular day is uh, the, there's a direct connection made between the raising of Lazarus from the dead and now Jesus entering into Jerusalem. And we need to understand that uh, there's a good number in the crowd coming from Bethany in particular. They were there that witnessed this. They saw this with their own eyes, some of them. And certainly lots of them have heard. Because you can imagine how the news spread through the little town of the little village of Bethany when Jesus actually did this. So Jesus, the king, is coming. He's coming to the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which, uh, which it was a week-long festival, one of the things that, that God had set aside and, and had commanded that all male children attend this annually. We need to understand that this was nothing new to Jesus. This is something Jesus had done every year for his whole lifetime, for his 30 years of life, 33 years of life. He had come to the Passover every year with his parents. Now, you can imagine, I've been talking to people all week this week, and can you believe all the people that are in Ocala right now? I don't know, wherever you go, there's just people, people everywhere. I went, I was in Ocala the other day, and I was over on 27, and I needed to get a part for a dryer in, in, in the closest place I could go. It took me a whole hour to go from there to Lowe's and back because of the traffic. Uh, and if, if you haven't seen that, you just haven't been around much. <laughs> Because it seems like it's, uh, it's everywhere you go. But can you imagine what Jerusalem would have been like during the, the weeks of the festivals? Because, I mean, here we have a city. They estimate the population, its resident population, was somewhere between 30,000 and 50,000. But during the, the, the week of Passover, the population would swell to uh, almost could have been as much as a quarter of a million people or more. Now, how do you think Dunellen would do? If we had such a massive influx of people, <laughs> you know, and on a regular basis, uh, and all of that. Now, just just to help us understand a few things, uh, and those the Jews were concentrated in two places. One was uh, Judea; the other one was Galilee. And we know that Jesus did he, he grew up in Galilee and did most of his ministry in Galilee. Very, really, very little of it in Judea. Uh, but we also know that the Jews were dispersed, many of them, in, in all of the nations around the Mediterranean Sea and even other places. And, uh, and very often those people came to Passover too. So, so you're talking about a multitude of people coming from a very wide uh, distance to come to this, uh, this festival. Now, we understand this. Uh, there's lots to go in the gospel before we even get to this point. And we know that, uh, that Jesus has spent three years. And during those three years, he has freed people from all kinds of illnesses and injuries. He's freed people from demon possession. He's even freed a few, like Na- Lazarus, uh, from death. 
And we can imagine if, uh, if something like that was going on around us, how the news of that would spread. I would imagine it was probably, yeah, maybe if you were a hermit living in, on some remote island out in the desert or something, in those days you would not have heard of Jesus. Everyone knew about Jesus. Everybody heard what he was doing. And there were a lot of people who had sat under his teaching. You go through the Gospel of Matthew, for instance, every time that that we have one of these teaching discourses, there's a description of the crowd that comes immediately before it, and that is, it was a great multitude. Not just a few people, but lots and lots of people. And just remember, a lot of those people were Jewish people, so guess where they happen to be right now? They're in Jerusalem with everyone else celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread and anticipating the Passover that's coming at the end of the week. Not only that, we're told this, that when Jesus, and this was late in his ministry, when he departed from Galilee and he came into Judea, that a great multitude of people followed him. It sounds like Jesus drew a crowd just about everywhere he went. And we can certainly understand that. One of the interesting things about the the last presidential race, we saw a guy win the the presidency that no one really thought was going to in the beginning. And we we understand one of the keys of all of his strategy was to go everywhere. And the thing about it is, is no matter where he went, he grew large crowds. Uh, Stephen and Caroline, our kids, they went to the livestock pavilion in Ocala when he was there. And they stood in line for hours and hours and hours with... uh, Tens of thousands of people that had gathered just for that one thing. And don't get me wrong, I'm not here in any way sense of the word comparing Donald Trump to Jesus. I'm just trying to paint a picture for you of, of how, how this kind of thing would take place and how it would affect the people around who saw it, who witnessed it, who were a part of it, and so on and so on and so on. We need to understand that there's a sense in which all of this has been building for three years, and on this particular day, it's coming to a head. This enthusiasm, this joy, this this hope that's expressed in all of this by these people, you need to understand that they came there that day very hopeful that change was going to take place. That things were going to be different. The crowd took palm branches from the palm trees. I don't know what other kind of branches you would get from palm trees. And went out to meet him and cried out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, who is also the king of Israel. We've all seen this picture so many times before. Jesus traveling along on the donkey and people before him laying down their cloaks. Some of them were doing their cloaks. Other people were taking palm branches and they were laying down in his path before him. Uh, And we can understand that this was something similar to like 
you know, laying down the red carpet or paving the way before him. Palm branches, uh, really, when you look at the Bible, there's some symbolism associated with them, and they're symbols of righteousness and just goodness before the King of Kings. I've shared with this, this with you a number of times before. When I was young, we lived on a house up on a hill, and you could see cars coming from probably half a mile away. And if we knew people were coming like Grandma and Grandpa or Mama and Papa or, you know, Mima and Granddad, uh, we would be able to tell that they were coming before they ever got close to the house because the driveway was probably 100 yards long or so once they even got to that. So we would always be outside waiting when they got there. One of the things you need to notice here is this, is, is word spreads. Now, now, now get the picture. As Jesus is going through Bethany, the crowd's beginning to collect and they're beginning to follow Jesus, and many of those were witnesses to the resurrection of Lazarus. But now word is spread into Jerusalem where the real multitude is. And as that happens, people begin to pour out of the eastern gate of Jerusalem and up the Jericho Road toward Bethany. And then they converge on each other. The one multitude converging with the other multitude, those coming out compared to those coming in. With Jesus right in the middle. Can anyone doubt for a minute that these people were receiving Jesus as a great king? They were. Nothing like this had taken place in Israel since the glory days of Solomon. 800 years earlier. So this nation, these people have gone a very, very long time without a whole lot to celebrate in the meantime. I think it's reasonable to believe that uh, there was no one around in those days that could have done what Jesus could attract the kind of crowd that Jesus did. What about Pilate? People couldn't stand him. What about Herod? People couldn't stand him either. What about Caiaphas? People couldn't stand him either. I mean, Jesus was an exceptional leader in a lot of ways, and one of those is people loved Jesus. They loved what they saw him do. They loved what they heard him say. And they began crying out, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Which literally, it's Aramaic, it literally means save, I pray. One of the commentaries that I read, it would really be cool if this was true. I don't know that you can really get this from, uh, from the text. But he said it's almost as if uh, they were saying God saved the king. You know, he was a British commentator, and so God saved the king had a lot uh, of meaning to him. Or or, Or this is the king who saves probably would be much better 
just think about this. Even the conquering kings never came into Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar never came to Jerusalem. Cyrus never came to Jerusalem. There was nothing like this that has taken place in Jerusalem for 800 years. And I'll just say this, that even 800 years ago was probably nothing compared to what took place on this day. My point, guys, is this, is this was a big deal. This was a very big deal to this nation, to these people. Jesus finding a donkey sat on it, even as it is written, Do not fear, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Prophesy, a prophecy of Zechariah, 500 years before the coming of Jesus, that when the king came, he would come mounted on a donkey. In the life of the ministry of Jesus, you constantly, continually see Old Testament prophecies being fulfilled. Now, if you got on, on, online, what you, would, you would probably find some websites. They would tell you there was like 45 things you know, that were prophesied by Jesus or about Jesus that, you know, in the Old Testament somewhere that came true sometime in his ministry and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. What I did the other day is I started looking through the books of Genesis and Exodus. And let me tell you, I didn't get very far before I found 10 things that Jesus specifically fulfilled in his coming. His coming and his doing are all about fulfillment of God's prophecies made sometimes thousands of years before they actually took place. Now, we think that the possibility, a probability, is that there was someone who came along that fulfilled all those things, but just didn't turn out to be the Messiah. Nil. I mean, really impossible, right? We understand that. What do you think about this donkey thing? You've probably heard some things that conquering conquering, uh, kings usually rode in on white horses. But there is another story about kings riding in on donkeys and basically in doing that saying to them, I'm so powerful, I'm so, I've defeated you and whatever, I can come and ride in on, on a, a simple little donkey. I don't know about that. Uh, but... What's going on here? Was Jesus just going down? He was walking down the road and thinking, boy, my feet are tired. And, you know, it would be nice to find a donkey to ride on. And there's having to be one there. And he talked to the people and they let him borrow it. And he jumped on the donkey. And and, and so now this prophecy about him from 500 years earlier is coming true. Is that kind of how it took place? Or maybe, you, maybe your idea is this, that, well, obviously what took place here was Jesus made arrangements in advancement. That he wanted to make sure that donkey was there because he wanted to make sure that he fulfilled that prophecy, right? 
So he made, he made arrangements with the owner sometime in advance and got all the details worked out and whatever. And the only thing the two disciples, when he sent them, had to do was go and, and get the donkey and bring him back. Let me tell you, if you believe either one of those two things, then you don't know Jesus as Jesus is. You don't even understand who, who Jesus is. We're talking about the Son of God, who is also the Son of Man. The one who is both divine and human. In one person. I hope you understand this. That donkey was there for one reason. Because Jesus willed that it would be. Not on that day. The very beginning of time itself. This is our Lord. This is our Savior. Every teeny tiny detail of this whole thing worked out by his might, by his power. Sometimes I think people believe this, that as Jesus went around and he was doing miracles, that you know when he, he wanted to calm the storm, that God the Father just gave him the power to calm the storm at the moment. Uh, you know, where he feeding the 5,000, that God the Father enabled him to do what he did, you know, for a brief moment. Let me tell you, that's not Jesus either, guys. Everything Jesus did, he did by his own divine power. Not something that was granted to him on a, 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 as an as-need basis. I mean, this whole thing is just unbelievable. <laughs> I mean, it really is. There's no story like this anywhere. You're not going to find anything that comes close to this story of Jesus that starts at his conception and goes all the way through to his ascension into heaven. Look in all the storybooks you want to. Look in every culture. Look at every mythology. Look at everything. There is nothing, guys, that comes anywhere like this, anywhere. That God himself took upon himself the form of a man and entered into our world on a mission. And let me tell you, one of those missions was this, was to pronounce himself to be the king he truly is. Not a king after people's making. These things the disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, they remembered that these things had been written about him, and they had, they had done these things to him. Let me tell you, at this point, there's not a single person there other than Jesus that had a clue what was going on. Nobody. None of those people who had seen Lazarus resurrected from the grave, none of those people who had heard about Lazarus being resurrected from the grave, other people just hearing about Jesus, you know, this, this guy that had this reputation, you know, everybody would go to see him. 
Would you go watch someone walk on the water if that was possible? Or, or you know, you know uh, if there was a chance of you going to be healed or to see someone healed miraculously from being crippled or blind or deaf or something like that? Wouldn't that be something that would have a, a drawing to you to go just to see it? It was one of those, those kinds of things that you would say, I will never believe that unless what? Unless I see it with my own eyes or I hear it with my own ears. This is Jesus. And one of the things that should humble all of us as much and more than anything else is realizing that he humbled himself to do what he's doing for us. No one understood. Later on, the disciples will remember. And just just this too, for a considerable time now, Jesus has repeatedly told the disciples what was going to happen to him when he went to Jerusalem. He didn't say anything about this grand celebration. What he told them over and over again was this, is that he was going to suffer and he was going to die at the hands of the leadership, the elders. But not the end of the story. That he would be raised again to life on the other side of all of it. But let me tell you, no one understood what was going on here with Jesus this day but Jesus. It's amazing when you consider the change of events that take place within just days. Many of these people who are crying out Hosanna to Jesus on on Palm Sunday in a few days, more than likely, will be in the crowd crying out, crucify him. Now, that should tell us something, that people really are fickle. They can go from one extreme to the other just with a blink of an eye. But what you're going to find is this, because they didn't understand. They didn't truly understand who Jesus was. They didn't truly understand why Jesus came. Many of them believe that Jesus came to deliver them from the oppression of the Romans. That's who they pictured the Messiah as being, someone that was going to come and bring Israel, turn Israel back to the glory days of Solomon. So as things begin to unfold that week, they find out Jesus is not the Messiah, at least in their minds. It's certainly not Messiah they expected or wanted or have, want to have anything to do with. I mean, can you imagine? Can you see people doing that? One Sunday crying out, Hosanna, and by the next Friday crying out, crucify. Now, we know people that can, can swing that much in just a short period of time. And perhaps, let me just challenge it with this, maybe some of us would have, maybe all of us would have been right there with them. Because when things begin to unfold, these people become very disillusioned. The week does not, not you know, 
come to pass in any sense of the word in any way that any of them believed it was going to at this point. The truth is the vast majority, if not every one of them to some degree, came that day as Jesus was entering to Jerusalem for all the wrong reasons. The reason they were there, the reason they were joyous, the reason they were so encouraged and they were hopeful and all of that is because they believed wrongly about what Jesus was about. They believed he came to save them from the Romans. Reality, Jesus came to save them from themselves, to save them from their sin. And even the twelve including Judas still at this point. None of them understood it. Not one of them. I was just talking with Charlie Barker this morning, and he's reading through the Bible again and was reading something in Deuteronomy, I think he told me, and he's like, I never remember that before. And all of that, and, 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 and it's just amazing how how we can pass over stuff and, and, and get off on the wrong track, on the wrong trail so easily. And for, forget. See, the point is this, my friends, and that is that the people came there for one reason, what they thought they were going to get out of it what they thought Jesus was going to accomplish for them. And let me ask you this. How is it that we very often go out spreading the gospel? Seriously. When you share the gospel with someone, what is it? What do you start with? And what do you end with? And what's all in between? I mean, don't we see the picture here? When we, when we want to evangelize people, we want to tell them the good news of the gospel, right? We want to, and it's our hope that when they understand what they get out of it, that that's going to be the thing that triggers them to come to Christ. I mean, obviously, when your choice is either heaven or hell, what are most people going to run to? But don't you understand that when we, when we say that, and very, we would probably say we've completely given the gospel to someone when we just tell them that you're a sinner, you need the forgiveness of God. The way you get that is through faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, period, end of the story. But guys, that's not the whole story. Let me tell you, receiving the gospel should be, if there's anything that you and I can do unselfishly, as much or more than anything else, it ought to be able to give to Jesus what is due him. Not for what we get from him, but because of who he is. That he is worthy to be adored. That he is worthy to be loved with the fullness and the wholeness of our heart. 
that he is worthy of our praise, that he is worthy of our worship. And let me tell you, this is a measure of the wickedness and the evilness of the human heart. Is that every person that ever approaches Jesus does so to some degree for self-centered and selfish reasons. For what they can get. What what they're going to get out of this relationship. And not so much what they're going to give to it. A lot of books early on as a Christian had a lot of impact on me. Uh, but one of them, and I don't, I don't agree with John MacArthur on, on a good number of things, but, but he wrote this book called The Gospel According to Jesus. And in that book he made this statement. He said that, you know, becoming a believer doesn't cost you anything. Uh, it, it doesn't cost you anything because it's by grace. But in the end it costs you everything. What do you think about that? Let me ask you something. How many people you think was shown up that day if they didn't believe some good for them was going to come out of it? Anybody? No, we know people. What if Jesus came in the world only for one reason? To make God better known to us. That we could see God through him. Now, let me just tell you something. That is one of the reasons Jesus came. But it's not the only reason. In a sense, it's not the primary reason. But it is a reason. So I just want to challenge all of us this morning as we we move on into the Monday-Thursday service on Thursday and and Easter service next Sunday. That we would get it out of our head that it's all about me. What I get. That we would be reminded, we did, an, we did a discipleship thing years ago, and we as a group came up with our gospel presentation. You know where we started? We started with God. That's where the gospel starts. Not with us. It starts with him. I want to encourage you to reflect between now and Monday, Thursday of of all the things that are represented in in the Lord's Supper and and its depiction of the suffering of Jesus. I want you to remember that. And remember that he did it for you. See, we can't question God's, uh, God's love for us through Christ Jesus. We just can't question it because he's demonstrated it to us in a way that just is beyond imagination. Who would ever think of something like this? And we're going to come here on Sunday next week and we're going to celebrate like all get out the resurrection of Jesus. But we're going to do it because that is what he is worthy of receiving. 
not because of what we get. Because of who he is. How worthy he is. As Jesus passes over the threshold of Jerusalem, death door is just a few days ahead of him. And he was a relatively young man. But not just a man. God himself. Coming. Into the world. For the very first time. Probably should stop there. There's one other thing I want to say. And when I get in that window, that'll probably be another thing I want to say. Sermons don't usually stop. You have to just stop them. But I want us to be looking ahead, too, because we understand this was not the only, the, the, the first and final coming of the king, that the king is coming again, right? And that is still future to us, right? Amen.